Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. You can find out more at familyvisionmedia.org and stacyontheright.com. And guess what? We are having a special guest today because it is Black History Month. And while we believe that Black history is American history and should be discussed every day of every month and should be embedded in our curriculum and a routine part of the American experience, since we still celebrate Black History Month here in this country, we are having a wonderful guest with us today. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Adam Coleman. He is an author. His book is Black Victim to Black Victor. He's a writer and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing at wrong underscore speak on Twitter. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. It's a privilege. So let's talk first about your book. Um, the title is fantastic. Black Victim to Black Victor. Why'd you write it? And I mean, was the title easy? Because it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually, it took me quite a few months, but I came up with the title uh, in the middle of writing the book. Um, to answer your question, uh, the reason I started writing it is because um, of the incidents that happened uh, after George Floyd. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, I was just, uh, you know, an average American who was just working his day job, but um, I'm plugged into the culture wars and I'm, I'm watching as everybody um, seems to be going a lot farther emotionally than I thought was necessary. And I was actually kind of taken back as to how it turned into this worldwide movement. Um, but the overall narrative shifted from, you know, finding accountability by the Minneapolis Police Department to being George Floyd is the very common Black experience. And it's that narrative that keeps coming up throughout my life, uh, that Black people are these inherent victims. Um, And it's become even more malignant because we now have the proliferation of the anti-racist movement uh, or just basically neo-Marxist movement that's going on that solidifies um, you know, that Black Americans are these victims, and not only are they victims, they're vi- victims to this invisible uh, system that's doing something towards them. Um, and so this is my attempt to say, one, racism is not the number one issue facing Black Americans. The number one issue is the family. Um, and while a lot of people who are on the left love to say that that's a right-wing talking point, it's not. You know, it's the truth. And for me, uh, family is the root of everything. It's not just a, you know, a statement to talk about Black Americans. And much of my book talks about Black Americans, but there's times when I don't mention Black people. I'm just talking about people in general, because that's the point. You know, Black Americans are experiencing this at a higher rate, but it's increasing for everybody. And no matter what skin color you, you are, uh, if you go through these particular experiences of a broken family, yeah, it's going to increase these particular situations. So um, I, wanted a, I wanted to actually mostly just express myself um, and write my story along with making social commentary about race um, and about family. Uh, so, you know, growing up single parent home and everything, I wanted to use my story and how I truly felt. So it's a, it's a very personal book. Um, I had no expectations. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd be, you know, 
doing a podcast like yours or anything like that. But, you know, I just wanted to be able to write it and see if anybody was interested. Well, we're interested. Um, so talk talk a little bit more about that. You just eloquently described something that I have been, I feel like I've almost, you know, beat my hand through a wooden table over this issue, which is black issues are American issues. White issues are American issues. Yeah. The things that face that that people face, they're not black or white or Hispanic. And there are some there are some kind of unique situations that okay that you know that's kind of unique to this kind of subculture or that culture. But really, it's American culture. It's Americans. Um, it's human nature. It's wrong decision making. Um, not not privilege, but the idea that people who make bad decisions consistently over time will experience you know more and more levels of endemic failure where the converse of that is making good decisions consistently over time brings about a state of success that to outsiders oh it's an instant successor oh that's privilege the only privilege is the privilege of good decision making because how many rich people have we seen crash and burn who had every advantage every opportunity all of the privilege wrapped up in a pretty box you know the everything you could possibly want and they still crashed and burned because of poor decision making so it's really an individual thing, but culturally, looking out among the American landscape, and especially during the month of Black History, um, where we're we're having leftists really focus this on just the skin deep type of issues. Who has a permanent tan? Which is that's what I like to call it. Who has a permanent tan and who doesn't? Who's a victim and who's an oppressor? And in your title, when you say, you know, when you use the word victim, we immediately have a mental picture. When you use the word victor. That is also something that immediately springs to mind. It's, it's one of Candace Owens' favorite words. It's a word that is used now more and more frequently to describe the antithesis to being a victim. So how do you speak to people who are politically on the left or maybe they're moderates, but they just don't they don't buy into the idea that this is more about our decisions uh, as opposed to privilege or any of the other buzzwords that have become so popular? Um, so this might sound kind of... Uh, dismissive, but for people who are on the far left, um, I personally don't think it's worth wasting energy on them. Um, you know, if someone's an ideologue, I, I kind of think of it like this. Um, Afghanistan, you know, we went into Afghanistan. What if our mission was to convert the Taliban into becoming Christian? You'd be like, that's a dumb idea. Why would you exert so much energy for something that may not even work? It likely wouldn't work. Because right, they're ideologues, right? For the people who are on the far left, they're ideologues. You know, so trying to go to someone who is strong in their beliefs or some, some college professor who spent, you know, a decade on anti-racism to try and convince him that he's wrong, it's, it's a fruitless venture. Um, but like you said, the moderates are the people that we should introduce better ideas. Um, you know, one of the things about the anti-racist movement that is very interesting is because George Floyd happened and it was such a shock for people. And then it presented a, a potential problem, right? Or a question, is there a race problem within America? Right. And people were thinking, yes. So whenever there's a particular problem or at least presented a problem, people want to look for a solution. And the anti-racist solution was already there. Right. It just took for people to seek it out. So it took for corporations to adapt to DEI, even though before George Floyd, they thought uh, this isn't worth it, or uh, they thought it was kind of a, a crock, basically. 
um, I was doing some research and, and in a matter of months, the DEI industry went up 123%. Right? These people are highly paid, um, highly sought after these days. But um, I think ultimately it comes down to convincing the moderates that there is a better solution. Um, and you know, the anti-racist solution is not one. And as a matter of fact, the anti-racist solution only perpetuates the problem. Uh, it, it addresses superficial things because the real issues are very difficult. You know, how do you convince a population of people to take family planning more seriously? And that's how I kind of see it this way. You know, like you said, decision is ultimately what it comes down to. But like family planning decisions uh, is extremely important. Um, I remember having a conversation with, uh, with um, a family member of mine who is more on, you know, he's kind of conservative, but he's more like very like pro-black stance. And we were just having, you know, a dialogue back and forth. And I said, let's say you're right. And there's this, you know, the white man's keeping us down and all this other nonsense, right? It does us no good if we don't family plan, right? The white man didn't make, you know, this person have three children with two different women. That was you. That was your decision. That, like, that's, that's what I'm ultimately talking about. And, you know, even in the book, I'm holding myself accountable because I had a child out of wedlock. And, you know, I didn't know any better. But now I'm trying to do everything possible to make sure that my son doesn't fall through the cracks of children who are born out of wedlock. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hold myself accountable, but tell other people that the way I did it was not the right way of going about it. And marriage should be something that is sought after. So I, 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 first of all, I think it is exactly what's needed when you, when you began speaking there, you said, you know, I, I hate to be blunt, you know, but I, I enjoy it. I, I think we need more blunt, straight talk in America today because it's going to prevent people from using these euphemisms like diversity, equity, and inclusion, which it it's really should be called division, um, just period, division. All it does is sow seeds of division that in, eventually manifest themselves in, in broken relationships and the inability for uh, organizations to behave in a cohesive manner. But beyond that, it is the personal story and testimony that is most riveting and the best indicator of someone being genuine in their effort to, uh, you know, bring about new ideas and reform. So when you speak from a position of being, a, you know, a, a father with a child that you had out of wedlock, you're not coming from on high from, you know, kind of seated in the heavenlies and kind of going, we, we shouldn't have out of wedlock burst. You're saying, look, I've, I've tried this. This is not the, the, the best way to go. So if you're in that situation, it's not about condemnation. It's about, okay, you know, Adam is here to tell us um, that we we have a different way. There's another way that we can go. And it also builds relationships and it gives people a chance to identify with you. So I think that is actually a powerful uh, attribute to to kind of help the conversation to move forward. So I, I looked on Amazon here as we were talking and I pulled up your book and I want people to hear, because I want to discuss this. I mean, the book come, it came out last year, March 25th, 2021. And it's called Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. And you can do 
uh, Kindle Unlimited or paperback. And you can you can like literally it's right here. And I have the link in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, and you're in the car, don't worry, you're, you're, you're good to go. When you get home, you can just click through and you can get the book. Um, so let's talk about this subhead. You did a little bit touch on ideologies and behavioral patterns. And now we have cultural norms. And I have a book coming out here mm-hmm. soon. And I talk about the new norms, things that weren't normal 20 years ago or 30 years ago that are now normalized. And being a single parent is one of those. But the ones that I highlight are the more pernicious ones, like pornographic materials in public libraries and schools towards you know children. Um the idea that the only way to protest or to make an impact politically is to be violent. You know, we saw Black Lives Matter and Antifa basically burn America down over a unjust killing. George Floyd, no, I, I don't I hadn't still haven't found anybody who thought it was OK for him to be killed in the way that he was. But it was still we still needed to do multiple billions of dollars in property damage to show our angst over that. And it just turned into a new norm. Now, if anything goes wrong, people can go out and destroy And that was kind of set during Occupy Wall Street. It was advanced during the Mike Brown case in Ferguson and then a shooting in Baltimore. And now it is a new norm. So talk to me about that. The encouragement of the victimhood complex, we have to fight back on that. How? How do we do it? Um, Well, for one, showing people that it's unproductive. Um, You have to have more people who don't buy into it. And and actually... um, I'm going to bring up one of the chapters I have. It's called The Ivory Tower Black Elite. And I'm pretty empathetic throughout the book. But I do have a level of condemnation when it comes to these people that I consider these Ivory Tower Black Elites. You know, the LeBron James, the Oprah Winfrey's, the Jamel Hills. You know, these particular people who are not just the most successful people or economically successful people um, of our race, but just in general. Um, you know, LeBron James is one of the wealthiest people that has ever existed, right? Not just in America, not just in this time ever. And for this man to go on television to indicate that a cop could just wake up one day on the, the wrong side and kill one of us, while at the same time being ushered in by the police into arenas across the country, right? It, it's a level of dishonesty that is is uh, ex- it comes from the pores of the bourgeoisie black people that exist in American society. These people have all of the opportunities, all the connections, uh, usually are, are highly involved when it comes to the political establishment, especially the Democrat establishment. Um, yet they turn around and, you know, like to do the, oh, I'm, I'm black as you, and look at what they're trying to do to us and get in their BMWs and Mercedes and drive into the suburbs and live around white people, right? It is, it is a high level of dishonesty. Um, it reminds me of uh, in Newark, New Jersey. Um, I'm in the state of New Jersey, so this is why it's somewhat familiar. Um, Sharp James. I remember years ago when Cory Booker was running for office and Sharp James, who's a darker-skinned black male, was saying, I'm a real black man, right? And he was doing all the black politics lingo. And Cory Booker lost, right? And that's part of black politics, is standing in front of lower class black people, saying, I'm one of you. And we know he doesn't live in in their neighborhood. We know he doesn't care. And matter of fact, he was corrupt. So it's, 
it's that level of condemnation. And I get sick and tired of these people who are the most fortunate. Like I, I think of any other profession. If you meet someone who is successful, generally they're like, hey, you want some help? You think, you know, they try to help you out. But our bourgeoisie, they just say, no, you know, I slipped through the cracks. You can't do it but because there's a system. Now give me money, right? It's that kind of thing. Or uh, look at me, I'm, you know, I'm popular now. You know, LeBron James got more notoriety once he became an activist than he did before. Now he also got some more condemnation because he became uh, political, but that's what he ultimately wanted. So I, I have a huge problem when highly successful black people turn around and look at lower class black people and say, you can't do it. And uh, one last thing, the, the situation with Brian Flores and, and the NFL is another example of a, I don't want to say wealthy, but a high earning black person who has all the privilege in the world, economically, connections and all these things, doesn't get what he wants, then cries racism, makes himself a martyr, and he expects the lower class black people to cry for them. And it's so insulting, and I don't know why they get away with it so much, but somehow they do. So, you know, I, I think that, I think I answered your question, but. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, you, you did. But I on the Brian Flores thing, there's, I, I do have a question for you because in the, in the story, um, so he didn't get the job uh, for another, that he's interviewed for more than one team. But the lawsuit is predicated mm-hmm. upon an interview that was supposed to happen where he was informed by Brian Belichick, uh, you know, unbeknownst to Brian Belichick, he was texting the wrong Brian and said, you've got the job. And he was texting the other Brian, the black Brian, who hadn't interviewed for the job yet. So the interview that was set up for him, Brian Flores, was actually a sham because they'd already given the job to the other guy. That's what the lawsuit is predicated on. Yeah. So I, I can understand when you say LeBron James, you know, running around trying to get sympathy from black people for supposed racism, like someone spray painted on one of his numerous, you know, mega mansions. They spray painted a bad word on the on the the gate and the wall next to it, and and so it was, I guess, a racial slur. And we're supposed to feel sorry for LeBron James, and I don't because I've been called a racial slur out, you know, out in public here. T- I'd say twice in my husband and I's adult lives. We've been called the N-word out in public. And both mm-hmm. times we were kind of surprised. And then, you know, we just carried on with, with what we were doing. And the second time it happened kind of recently, a few years ago. And my husband and I actually got in our minivan and laughed a little bit because we just, it was kind of like, it's unbelievable. We're out here in the suburbs. And then we drove home and went on about our business. So I never understand why LeBron James had to make a big deal out of his, that spray paint on his, his you know, mansion he it was a security person who saw it and reported it back to him because he wasn't living there at the time because he lives in different places during different times of the year. It seems by very nature the fact that he owns multiple mansions that he would not need sympathy if someone vandalizes even if it's racially motivated one of his numerous multi-million dollar properties. So I I totally agree with right. you on that, but I think that the the issue that we have with the the uh, Brian Flores story is that it's the uh, the the Rooney rule. The Rooney rule is what they have to live by, where they have to say, for every position at this level or above in the NFL, we have to interview a black candidate. And so in order to satisfy that, 
they will interview someone even knowing the person has no chance of getting the job. So it is still diversity, equity, and inclusion that is the, the culprit here um, in making lives more difficult for people who are literally going out and, you know, making an effort to get a job like Brian Flores or what have you. Right. And I understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the Rooney Rule. But the Rooney Rule didn't just get implemented yesterday. I think that's, that's ultimately the, the gripe. I'm, I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Like, you've created a rule where you forced them to come and see you. And the whole thing is, how many white people do you think has interviewed for a head coach position? And they have a, a guy in mind already. They're just doing their due diligence. I'm sure it happens all over the place, even outside the NFL, just at regular jobs, right? You're like, listen, I got 10 people I got to interview. I'll just see them all out, but I think I really like this guy, right? That happens. But the problem is that they created this rule where they thought by forcing them in, you know, basically uh, affirmative action of of interviewing, force them into the room that that they're going to be like, wow, this guy is amazing. When it comes to these sport leagues, it's one big club. And either you're in it or you're not. So it's you know, it's not necessarily a race thing. It's for familiarity thing. A lot of times these uh, you know the GM might get hired somewhere, and then what's the next thing they do? They hire their former head coach or a former uh, you know offensive coordinator that worked under them because they had a good relationship, right? Or someone that they know they know referred to them. You know, so there, it's one big club. Um, but the Rooney Rule is nothing new to me. And I, I'm just actually surprised that people are like questioning it. Cause I remember, cause I'm a sports fan. I remember a handful of years ago, people applauding the Rooney rule, <laughs> black people <laughs> applauding the Rooney rule. Now it's all of a sudden a bad thing. Um, so well, it's not working. That's why <laughs> it's so they were applauding it. Cause they thought, <laughs> Oh, that should do it. No human nature is stronger than, any, you know, quote unquote yeah. rule. And what you're discussing when you, ta- when you mentioned, um, you know, they, they, you hire the coach and then they bring over their assistant coach from their old team. And so they want to work with someone they already know because they want to replicate the success or, you know, they're coming in to solve a problem when they're new. A new coach is coming in because yeah. the old current coach wasn't bringing wins. So they want to bring in a team that can assist them. They, they either want to hire someone of their own choosing or find someone that they've worked with before to help them replicate success that they've had in the past or deal with difficult issues. So there, there's a lot more to this. But I think the point that you and I are making here. Um, is that when dealing with human nature, we are not going to be able to simply say, okay, well, what we need is we need three rules, right? <laughs> we just need three new rules. And these three new rules will take care of all of these issues with human nature that we have, that people like to work with people they're familiar with, or that this whole NFL system is a big club system. And they even prefer to hire as their their coaches, the sons of head coaches, which you and I both know um, that we are not automatically gifted with the same skill in any professional area, just because our parents had skill in that area. We often find people who are great businessmen and they raise their kids to be great businessmen too. We often find people who are amazing at, let's say, you know, being a Hollywood actor or being a politician and their kids couldn't be a politician or an actor to get out of a paper bag. They literally could not do it because they just don't have it in them. So it's not an automatic. And and the NFL is actually known for hiring the sons of head coaches to be head coaches and having those men fail, and they still do it. So some of it is them not replicating their own mistakes, but some of it is human nature, and it cannot be solved by a rule. It's going to have to be excellence and breaking into those um, those those groups that you were talking about where it's a club. You have to kind of break into the club. And I don't know if Brian Flores hasn't done that, but I just I think 
there's more to this than just, oh, we need a Rooney rule. We need this. We, we need DEI. None of these things are working. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with everything you said. And I would actually argue that Brian Flores was in there. I mean, the fact that Bill Belichick, you know, some people think is probably the greatest head coach or one of the greatest head coaches uh, in NFL history, has his number. And, you know, they go back and forth and he worked underneath him. Like, that's nothing to scoff at. Uh, you know, he was connected and he was getting paid handsomely for it. So, you know, he may not like how the Rooney rule worked out for him, but that does not make him Rosa Parks <laughs> or any of these other <laughs> uh, you know, civil rights activists. Like that's the, that's the ultimate silliness uh, about it. And when he was pressed on it, he just mumbled his way through it uh, as to how ridiculous that sounded for them to put that in the lawsuit. So um, I think that's, that's ultimately where I'm coming from with, with it. Yeah. And, it, but I think it's an important discussion to have because the lawsuit is, you know, happening in black history month. And so there's a lot of people trying to connect something to black history month that really has nothing to do with it. And, you know, as I said in the open, I believe that the parts of black history that we're most focused on, which obviously the civil rights movement was pivotal for America. And it is, something that we can actually feel a sense of pride about because our country went through that and we are still one country. Like we, we have abolished so many, there were walls and barriers to blacks success and achievement and freedom, the, the exercise of Liberty that have been, that just been obliterated, right? We live in mixed neighborhoods. We go to mixed churches. We have, you know, amazing success for Americans all over the place, but there is this sense that because we have Black History Month, then we can just have the civil rights movement and George Washington Carver, nothing about his faith or his amazing perseverance. Just he invented, you know, this many six, 680 products from the peanut, but nothing about how he persevered over racism and how devout a Christian he was because it was his faith that carried him through those experiences. And then there's all these other people who they actually did the first, we're talking about the first uh, like Navy SEAL operation was led by a black man. Before we were even a country and we were fighting the Brits, they kidnapped a man and the leader of that expedition was a black man. There were 20 blacks and 20 whites who ran that operation. Before we had Navy, before we had SEAL team, before we had a constitution, we have blacks and whites working together to kidnap a British general so that we could do a prisoner swap. But people don't know about that. We have the um, so many other things. I could go on and on and on. But the point is, we need these things to be put back into our history curriculum for children so that all kids can learn about the from the founding on from the history of this country from before we were even a nation that blacks have been contributing and that yes slavery was a part of it but it's not all of the black american story it's not just george washington carver slavery and the civil rights movement it's not just martin luther king as fantastic as he was and the legacy that we live out because of him he's not all of black history it's too much to put in a month and i think your book goes a long way to resetting the table for that conversation to be had. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, my issue when it comes to talking about black history is for one, like, for example, if we use uh, the civil rights era, you could talk about the civil rights from the aspect of look what was done to us, or you can talk about look what we overcame. Right. And mm -hmm. those are two different ways of teaching about it. Um, you can teach black history month, in the absence of what white people did to black Americans, right? So I, I think that's ultimately what I would much rather have people talk about, the perseverance of black Americans, uh, all the different obstacles they were able to overcome. Um, 
Or even, can we talk about Black history, you know, post-civil rights? Because I feel like we don't talk about it. Um, I'm sure there were some great Black Americans who did really good things post-1965. So, you know, it's, it's all of these things uh, in combination. It's the, it's the discussion around race. Um, it's one of the things where people have an issue with critical race theory uh, or critical practice, uh, to be technical about it. Um, you know, the infusing of race essentialism, uh, that we are inevitably victims because in, in the history we were victims. And so, you know, that's a, it's a very horrible outlook, to be honest with you, to see the country that we helped to contribute towards, uh, the country that we, you know, we live in, we benefit from, uh, you know, we are the most fortunate black people that have ever existed in, in, uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why do we see it as only from a standpoint of being victims? So I think that's, that's my ultimate gripe when it comes to that. Well, I think as a gripe, I would join you in that. Although um, I think the solution we've already discussed here. And so we, we have, as always, an opportunity to continue on in the path that we've been on, which has been set up for us by people who truly just want America to be a Marxist nation and for everyone to be a victim. And we can choose that path or we can choose the path that our founders chose, that the earliest black Americans who lived in this country chose, free blacks, blacks who had worked their way out of indentured servitude, and even blacks who lived as slaves in this country who were then later emancipated. And, you know, we had a civil war to actually make that real and make it permanent. And every stage in this in the history of this country, we've seen excellence on the part of black Americans and excellence on the part of Americans in general. And I think when we focus on excellence, it builds up the marrow in our bones, it puts steel in our spine and enables us to go forward and be courageous as well. And for us to live as victors, because if you're in America, and you're not living as a victor, you still have a chance to change that situation. This is the easiest place to be a victor. I certainly wouldn't want to be doing what I do now anywhere else on the globe, except maybe Switzerland, but I can't immigrate there because they like people in their 20s and 30s. And I have kids that age. So I, my, my dream of becoming a Swiss citizen is probably uh, a, it's it's a pipe dream, but still I can mention it. Um, but I, I knew this is going to be a great interview. I knew we were going to have a, a wonderful conversation. I hope people will share this podcast far and wide. Adam Coleman, thank you for joining us today on the book and everything else. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. It was an honor and a privilege. All right. And that's another podcast in the books. Lord willing, I'll be with you again soon. God bless and find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com and FamilyVisionMedia.org.